Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my co-host and my partner in all things strategy, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And for today's episode, most important, the author of The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare on How Leaders Rise, Rule, and Fall, published by Basic Books, and whose publication date is today. Elliot, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's it's good to be here. I, I do want to make a preemptive strike, though. I showed you both of you guys drafts of this book, so you can't criticize any parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to introduce our very special guest, a friend of uh, Shield of the Republic, a former colleague in government, uh, Ken Edelman, who, if I really did a full introduction, we wouldn't have time to do the rest of the podcast. But all right, don't he, hold back, though, Eric. Don't be shy. No. I won't be shy. <laughs> I think I think I think all of your listeners want that, you know, and then, <laughs> then to wrap it up afterwards. We could do that. He he has done enormous public service. He he was assistant to the Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, in the uh, Gerald Ford administration. Uh, he was the deputy perm rep at the United Nations uh, to Gene Kirkpatrick uh, at the beginning of the Reagan administration and later served with distinction as the director of the Arms Control and Disarmament uh, Agency. Uh, for 20 years, he was the national editor of the Washingtonian uh, magazine. Uh, and for our purposes, uh, he has taught Shakespeare uh, at Georgetown University and George Washington University, and he is vice president of Movers and Shakespeare's, a company that does executive training uh, in leadership uh, using Shakespeare to educate corporate leaders. Ken, welcome to the show. It's really wonderful to have you. Thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here for two reasons. Number one is I love the Shield of the Republic. I listen to it every, every time it comes out and I wait for it to come out. So you two guys do a wonderful job. And secondly, I read uh, Elliot's book and was very impressed with it. It's really very strong. And if it's coming out today, it should be flying off the shelves even as we speak. Well, and Elliot's going to have a special treat for our listeners. Uh, Shielded Republic listeners are going to get uh, at some point here in the show a product code that's going to allow them to get a discount on, on the Hollow Crown. But before we get to that, Elliot, let me kick this off by asking you, what brought you to write about Shakespeare and leadership? How did that come about? So actually, it was a result of um, really a happenstance. Uh, you know, there are two great Shakespeare theaters in Washington, D.C., one at the Folger, which is one of the great Shakespeare libraries, the other the Shakespeare Theater Company. We went, we were at the Folger, and we saw Henry VIII, which is not performed all that much, and some people used to think that it was not written by Shakespeare. I think the view now is it was a collaborative work with a man named John Fletcher. And there was a, there's a great moment in it, which is all Shakespeare, where Cardinal Wolsey, 
who's basically been the prime minister for Henry VIII, is suddenly deposed and he's he's stung by it. And if you'll forgive me, I'll read the passage. Um, it goes like this. Farewell, a long farewell to all my greatness. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes. Tomorrow blossoms and bears his blushing honors thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost. And when he thinks good easy man full surely, his greatness is a ripening, nips his root. And then he falls as I do. I have ventured like little wanton boys that swim on bladders this many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth. My high-blown pride at length broke under me, and now has left me weary and old with service to the mercy of a rude stream that must forever hide me. Oh, Cromwell, Cromwell, had I but served my God with half the zeal I served my king, he would not in mine age have left me naked to mine enemies. And, you know, I, I was, uh, that, that passage affected me very powerfully because my first thought was, I know that guy, and I suspect the two of you do too. We know people in Washington who have had that that experience. And then really one thing led to another. I was meeting with a bunch of my uh, students and I said, you know, I'm just so taken with this speech. I'm going to share it with you. Then they said, wow, the Shakespeare guy is very interesting. Did he, were there other speeches in Shakespeare that are worth paying attention to? And I said, yeah, a few. And it ended up turning into a course. And the course turned into a book. And I think what I found is as I reflected on what I've seen in Washington, the history I've studied, and frankly, my own experience as a dean, is just how much Shakespeare has to contribute to our understanding of the workings of power. And um, I decided to write a book which would really, really try to grapple with that in a, a serious way. So that's really the the genesis of it. Ken, you know, you have been for many years, uh, a Shakespeare aficionado. I'm curious, did you come to your admiration uh, for Shakespeare through a similar process to what Elliot just described? I mean, did it resonate with you because of your experiences in government or did it actually come before your time in government? Well, there was nothing so elevated as Elliot's experience with that uh, beautiful, beautiful quote from Henry VIII. I never liked Henry VIII all that much, but I admire those who do, like Eliot. And uh, what I found was Shakespeare offered three things that um, really moved me. Number one is he told stories, and people learn best through stories. We have all these PowerPoints. We have all these do's and don'ts. We have, you know, Deuteronomy, <laughs> do this and don't do that. Uh, and no one remembers any of them. At least I, I don't remember of them. But you tell a story and people remember the story. You remember Jesus' parables. You remember some of the great stories of the Bible. You remember, And Shakespeare told stories like nobody else. Number two, he had the greatest insights into human beings. And Eliot is talking about the insight of someone in power and then kind of uh, disturbed by that and then falling from power. But, you know, he did insights into you know, wives and husbands and sisters and brothers and kings and rulers and subjects and, you know, go on and on. All these relationships that you have in life. And Shakespeare is like, I think, a gigantic MRI machine that puts really large on the whole wall what 
all of us feel and see in, in tiny versions. So it's the greatest insights into human beings and human nature. And insights makes any organization. It's what's really uh, so profoundly important on any organization or any kind of relationship. And third, he uses the greatest words. And Eliot's quote is uh, typical of uh, just the beautiful, beautiful language that Shakespeare has. You know, I, I, I uh, completely agree with that. And I'm, I'm seized by a lot of the same things. Uh, was Samuel Johnson, I think, said that uh, Shakespeare is a mirror of life. And, and I, that's really true. And that's why so many different kinds of people have admired him, including some pretty unsavory people, let it, let it be said. There is really, there is all of life in him. I, I, I'd add, you know, from the point of view of this book, um, he, he is absolutely a profound student of character. He's not interested in mass movements or economics. And, you know, those are not his subjects. He, he is focused on character and in, in all of its different manifestations. But I think there are, uh, there are two other aspects in particular that I would mention and that I think are relevant um, to the book. One is he sees politics as a kind of theater and the exercise of power as a kind of theater. And one of the things I try to do in the, in the book is really meditate on that. What does that really mean? That, you know, somebody's the director, somebody's the actors, there's an audience um, and so forth. The, the other thing is um, he, he deals with different kinds of power but he's particularly interested, I think, in uh, power relationships and the politics and human relationships of courts. And you might say, well, we don't live in monarchies by and large. But the truth is, any human organization, I think, when you get to the very top, it's a court. You know, there's somebody in charge. There may be a crown prince or a crown princess. There are courtiers. Um, there are all the behaviors that you see in, in so many of Shakespeare's plays. And if you pay a lot of attention to that, I think he, he really has an enormous amount to teach. I uh, read a few years ago that out of the 37 plays, something like uh, 22 of them or 26 of them have court scenes in them. And I have on my shelf a big book, a very thick book, that for, by an NYU law professor called Shakespeare and the Law. <laughs> and people thought, well, those missing years of Shakespeare before we, you know, history caught up with them. Uh, he must have been a lawyer, but, you know, he could have been a falconer. He could have been a soldier. He could have been a traveler to Italy. He could have been all these things. It is true that he has these insights into rulers and understanding theater. But it also is, um, he has some characters that after a while you realize that are kind of funny. <laughs> and I'll give you an example that took me several readings of a very obscure play, a Troilus and Cressida, which I like, but not many people do. It kind of dumps on both war and, um, and uh, relationships, love. But it's Troilus and Cressida, and they have a character in there that's Nestor, okay? And he's part of the tribunal. Uh, Shakespeare hits... The play when the war has been going on, I think, seven years, and uh, everybody realizes it's kind of stupid and uh, really very wasteful. Anyway, the point is that Nestor gives a number of speeches uh, in the war tribunal, 
that are start, all start out the same way. Nestor says, I'm very old, I'm very experienced, I'm very learned, I'm uh, really uh, quite an expert in life, but I'm kind of old. And then he goes on to talk. Nestor talks and talks. He talks, he's very wordy. And you realize after the play, several times, seeing it several times, that Nestor says exactly what the person right before him has said with no greater insights, no greater examples, no greater depth. He just goes on and on with the person right before him. All right. Now you take a Nestor mindset or a character in your mind. You go to government meetings like you have Eric and you have uh, Elliot. You're sitting there and you say, bingo, here's Nestor. He hasn't said one thing that I haven't heard before. It's just wordier. And he goes on pontificating and how and saying how wise he is. Well, he's not very wise. He's just repeating in lots of words what's been said. So you get these kind of characters or kind of motifs of human nature that can be very funny like that. No, they can be funny and they can also... They can be shocking as well. I mean, the the Trilus and Cressida is uh, is retelling basically of the Iliad, but it's a very dark retelling of of the Iliad. One of the things I I describe in the book, what I try to do in the book is to weave in both an analysis of the plays, but also talking about history and some personal experience. Another play, which I I really like, uh, Coriolanus, which doesn't get performed quite as much um, as, as some of the others, there's this great scene with this terrific general Coriolanus. First, he's a brilliant military leader, and politically, he's an nincompoop. I dare say the two of you have encountered one or two people like that. <laughs> I was going to say that doesn't happen in Washington ever. <laughs> but you know, there's this great moment where he he's won these tremendous victories, and he is about to be named consul, elected to the consulate in Rome, uh, which is that's the thing that he had wanted most. It's the you know sort of the highest position in the Roman Republic. And then there's a, a moment where the the people say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. But first you have to show us your wounds. And, um, and of course, you know, he's got, his body's gotten pretty beaten up in the course of the wars and he just explodes in fury and everything goes downhill from there. Well, I was teaching this in a class and I had a class with, you know, our students at SICE who, uh, professional students, and there were about half a dozen who had served in some pretty hard places in Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and seen some pretty terrible things. And I said to them, don't, don't feel obliged to answer the question I'm about to put to you. Have any of you ever been asked to show your wounds? And how did you react to that? And there was a very emotional half hour, I would say, where, yeah, that 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 moment really resonated with them. That 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 sense that, you know, they had done some diff, very difficult things for their country, and everybody else had this kind of wireistic interest in what is it like to kill somebody or or something like that, and they were kind of reacting the way Coriolanus did. So I agree. I think if, you know if you have a fair amount of life experience and government, or really, I think any certainly any position of authority. There are so many times that 
Shakespeare resonates with you and frequently in unexpected ways, you know, like you were just describing with, with Nestor, uh, Ken, I'm going to go back and reread Troilus and Cressida another time and, and look out for that. And uh, Coriolanus is a wonderful play. We just saw it last summer at the uh, Utah Shakespeare Festival, where we have gone out now for 35 years and we have 70 people with us, but um, it had, it has one of the great lines. First of all, it has one of the great portrayals of mothers that Volumnia, Coriolanus' mother, and Coriolanus is the last of the great, great mother lovers. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't like anybody else on earth, but he loves his mother. I mean, Freud was uh, made and created for uh, Coriolanus. But uh, Volumnia, the, uh, the mother, has um, one of my favorite, I say this all the time, one of my favorite lines in Shakespeare after, you know, she get, gets mad at everybody around her. Uh, and But Coriolanus is in awe of her. And she finally is kind of disgusted. And she says, if only the heavens had nothing else to do but to honor my curses. <laughs> you know, all these gods are busy up there doing other things. Why don't they have pay attention to my curses instead. It's just, it's just a great, great line. The two of you have touched on um, a couple of themes here that I want to come back to. One is the sort of performative part of politics. The other is sort of ambition and it's, uh, you know, its role in political life and, and people's character. And I, I suspect both of you, uh, like me, have seen ambition do terrible things to people in this town in particular. But before we get there, I want to ask you, Elliot, the title of the book uh, comes from a speech in Richard II, which you use as the epigraph for the book. And I'm just curious uh, why you chose it. So, uh, <laughs> okay, here's the, uh, the gritty truth of book publishing. Uh, Eric, is that the, the title of the book is really negotiated with the publisher. And, and their main concern is to make sure that people understand what the book is about. So the, the working title I had had was Rough Magic because there's a uh, the great scene in uh, uh, The Tempest, which I talk about, where the magician uh, Prospero, who's kind of was first deposed as Duke of Milan, and then he becomes sort of the ruler of this desert island. And he has fantastic magical powers. Uh, says, I herewith abjured this rough magic, uh, and I'll break my staff and uh, bury it several fathoms deep and deeper than did plummet ever sound. I'll drown my book, book of magical spells. And it's really quite interesting because, you know, I asked myself, why does Prospero have to do that? You know, he's he's going to be Duke of Milan again. Uh, he has all these magical powers. And, and the point is he understands what what the rough magic of power has done to him as a human being. And then among other things, it's gotten in the way of his ability to deal with his daughter. But, but uh, the, <laughs> the real problem is that uh, I think the publisher was concerned and I think rightly so that people might not instinctively understand, you know, the book is, is about Shakespeare and the nature of power. So the, instead we used, again, a, it's a well-known passage. It's from Richard the second, um, Richard II is a very weak king who gets deposed, but he, he has brilliant speeches because, boy, can he talk. 
And it's, uh, again, if you'll indulge me, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, be feared, and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable. And humored thus comes at the last, and with a little pin, bores through his castle wall, and farewell king. And, and it, it's, it is a very powerful passage to use for a book like this, because what, one of the things that it um, that is going on here is, if I can use a technical term, it's called anagnorisis, where a there's this sudden revelation of this is what's going on, or this is who you really are. And Richard II, who's been a delusional character for a large part of his career, you know, he thinks there are hosts of angels who are going to save him from the people who are going to depose him, suddenly realizes, oh, this is this, this is what I am. And, and it's, um, Shakespeare makes wonderful use of this. What, one of the points I make in the book is, I mean, here again, this is not just a theatrical device. You occasionally get these moments of anagnorisis in the real world. And the example that I use is something that the two of you may remember, which is uh, Nixon's final speech to the assembled White House staff as he's about to take off, having resigned from the presidency where there is this moment of anagnorisis. He, you know, he realizes that he destroyed himself by his hatreds. And it's nominally a speech, but I, I have to think it's, it's actually more of a Shakespearean soliloquy where he's, he's revealing what he really thinks about his circumstances. And like so many people, not only in Shakespeare, but in the real world, has become wise too late. Ken, do you, do you see Nixon's, I mean, you served in the Nixon administration. Did you see the Nixon's farewell speech in the same same light as, as Elliot just described? Well, I think uh, Elliot is being very flattering to Nixon. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I spent time with Nixon when I was at the United Nations. And he had an office in New York and he didn't have much to do. And so he'd invite me over to tell him what was happening around the world. And I didn't get that kind of blinding insight. But uh, I think you know, that Elliot is really on to something, whether he realized it or not, that uh, last talk about how if you hate somebody, it'll eat you up. And uh, we taught a course, in fact, uh, Carol took, taught a course, and then we did it together, on forgiveness. And we used the Tempest, Elliot. And uh, we used the Tempest uh, to show that it's a revenge play and it goes along because Prospero has been very wronged. He was uh, kicked out of power by his brother and uh, another uh, a, uh, king in a neighboring uh, city. And he and his little daughter were put on a rickety boat to send out to drown. And he was on this island for 12 years. And finally, he has his brother and the other co-conspirators who were passing by, uh, coming back from a wedding, as it happens, in North Africa. And uh, he causes a storm, and he gets them all. And finally, after all these years of seething, uh, he is saying, okay, I'm going to get them, all right? I've been thinking about this for 12 years. And uh, Ariel, who is the kind of mystic or kind of the uh, power there, uh, 
although she's not human, but um, she, you know, is rounding them up for Prospero, and he's going in for the kill, and we're all excited because it's totally justified, and he should, he should get it. And all of a sudden, Ariel says to him, well, you know, um, when you see this other fellow who wasn't part of the conspiracy, and the sadness, you know, you, you just feel like forgiving these people. And, and Prospero, who had no idea, to do any such thing, says to Ariel, would you? You know, which is the question, you know, would anybody in this situation do that? Ariel comes up with a great line, one of the great lines of Shakespeare. Again, I say that hundreds of times. And Ariel says, I would were I human. And, you know, in the largest sense. And Prospero, you know, is there, he's kind of stumbling around instead of slapping his forehead, and he says, well, I, 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 I will, you know, temporarily, because they must be very, very apologetic for what they did. And it turns out they weren't apologetic for what they did. You know, and we see that. Shakespeare shows us in the next scene. But what the point of it is, that Prospero realizes something very profound, that forgiveness is about us. It's not about them. They may not be. They may not be regretful. Okay, they may not be sad about what they did. They may be dead, and so they can't. But we have to get over it because it eats away at that speech you mentioned, Eric. It eats away at us, and so he has to go. And I've always thought, and this is my interpretation. Who the hell cares about my interpretation? I always thought the tempest meaning the storm, was not the storm that starts the play that puts Prospero uh, on the island with Miranda, but uh, is the tempest in his mind. And he, it is so, for 12 years, this tempest has been beating, he says, my beating mind. And finally, when he decides to forgive, and this group that he has there, uh, all entangled, all, you know, ready for his revenge, um, then the mind stops beating. So the tempest ends. You know, that, I mean, that's beautiful, uh, Ken. I, I think I mean, the way I've always interpreted that is not so much forgiveness as letting go of his hatred and his anger, and, and which, which then actually ripples out. So it's interesting. If you look at the way he talks about Caliban, his sort of you know, somewhat monstrous servant at the beginning of the play and at the end of the play, at the beginning of the play, you know, he's basically threatening him and torturing him. And I mean, he's using, he's using pain. And at the very end, you know, when he's talking to the, the king with whom he's reconciled, he says, yeah, this, this thing here is mine also. So he kind of acknowledges a, a sense of responsibility. So he, he does become more human. The, the book ends, um, with talking about how people leave power. And I, I talk about two people who leave it voluntarily. One is Prospero, for whom you think it pretty much works out okay, although he does say every third thought will be of death. I mean, he, you know, he knows this is uh, in some ways the beginning of the end for him. And the other is, of course, King Lear, who uh, relinquishes power in a very different way. He doesn't 
you know, whereas I think it's pretty clear that Prospero knows what he's doing as he relinquishes his magical powers. Lear thinks he can have all the benefits of power without any of the responsibility. And he may also be somewhat senile. That's another matter. Um, and it, it's, it's important how people exit uh, power and how they choose first, whether they choose to do it and how they choose to do it. And Lord knows we see plenty of cases around us of people who are just adamant. They're going to cling to it for as long as, as possible. I mean, the most, if I can put it this way, benign form is, you know, senators who cling to the very, very end. And, but there are much more malign forms of this. I think we see all the time. I think that in Shakespeare's characters, Elliot, they have a tougher time than we did. Okay. The three of us were in government. At least two of us, you two, served very nobly and really gifted uh, servants uh, of the Republic. And then you left. Okay. When the three of us leave, we can go do something else. We can go do, and you guys are doing important things. And so it's not all of our identity. It's not, you know, our main identity. It's not our main life, okay? It's, it was an important factor in our lives. I think it would, all three of us would agree that it was probably some of the most challenging and some of the most wonderful parts of our life, but it wasn't the whole life. Richard II, who you quoted before, Elliot, says at the end, I have no name, okay? I mean, <laughs> without the kingship, I am nothing. I'm nothing. And so that is really a situation that you know, us in a uh, free country like the United States can serve for a while and then leave. That gives, let me just say, that gives an enormous power to us, okay? Because you don't have to do this stuff that is embarrassing or is wrong. You see all these, if I may be partisan because I was a Republican for many years, I'm not, certainly not now, but you see all these Republicans, especially in the House, and you think to yourself, why do they say this? Why do they do this? Well, because they don't want to give up power. Well, don't they have nothing else in life going for them? Don't, do they have a wife? Do they have any kids? Do they have a dog? Do they have another profession? Do they have any other part of life that can fulfill them? Uh, and, you know, I mean, how bad can they be to say, this is all I have? That's really sad. Well, I think there are a lot of powerful people who are like that. I mean, I talk a little bit about um, LBJ. And, you know, it is very strange. As soon as LBJ leaves the presidency, and this is a guy who lived for power, was extraordinarily adept at using it, uh, sometimes in benign ways, sometimes in pretty malign ways. And he, But basically, you know, as soon as he leaves power, he, he crumples up and he dies very shortly thereafter. Um, and I think it's because... You know, at, at a certain point, his understanding of himself, he is a little bit like Richard II, not nearly as flighty. I mean, LBJ would have killed a lot more people. Um, but but in a way like Richard II, he, he no longer knows who he is when he's no longer in a position of, of power. Yeah. And King Lear comes up with a great line, of course. He says, can anybody tell me who I am? Yeah. Because he, he can't understand uh, who he is. We've talked uh, a bit about leaving power and 
you know, uh, the difficulty of leaving power. And one thing that does strike me, Ken, with regard to your comments, it, it's true that in democratic societies, uh, people have sometimes trouble realizing when their sell-by date has been reached. But it strikes me as different from some of the places I served as a foreign service officer, particularly Russia and Turkey, for instance, where you've got authoritarian leaders who, for them, the prospect of leaving power is kind of existential, because if if they leave, they're likely to end up imprisoned or dead. And I wonder if that makes a difference, and if that, in some sense, is more akin to what Shakespeare is describing than our own political experience. The answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they can, uh, you know, face jail. And I, I think that's true of Trump today. I think he's running for office to stay out of jail. And I think should he, God, you know, willing, uh, not get the nomination, that's my first choice, but certainly not win the election. That would be an existential threat on the republic. Uh, you know, he'll be in jail. Yeah, well, Bibi Netanyahu is the same way. Yeah, absolutely the same way. And look at the contortions that he put himself through as, uh, you know, bending himself like a pretzel in order to, you know, defy, what was it, 14 years as prime minister, which is pretty good, uh, before this round, and uh, just to keep himself out of jail, the contortions. Let me just say, um, we've been talking these particular stories, and they're wonderful. There also is something grand about the philosophy of Shakespeare, okay? Um, and, and not just in a particular situation, not just with particular people who are in power, leaving power, clinging to power, whatever it is, but, you know, kind of the meaning of life kind of uh, questions and uh, what determines life. And, you know, when Hamlet says there's a divinity that shapes our end, rough hew them as we might, the readiness is all. Hamlet's saying, you know, just what Lincoln has said many times over and over, I influence events here and there. I push them along. I, I help them. I discourage them. I pull back here. But you know what? There seems to be a divinity that, you know, is shaping our end. There seems to be some other fate, call it, uh, design, plan. I don't know what you call it, but let's call it orange, okay? There's an orange out there that seems to be controlling things more than we think it should, maybe than, than we realize it does, but we, we can modify it a little bit along the way. And the readiness is all. We just have to be prepared for what comes next. And those, those kind of big thoughts are um, also what really grabs me about Shakespeare. I wonder if, you know, Bismarck's comment about statesmen, uh, you know, listening for the rustle of God, you know, coming by and then grabbing the hem of his garment before making decisions, you know, is applicable here. Well, I think, you know, there's there's some of that, but there's also, and again, I, I, I think I probably have a particularly dark view, in part because of the, the plays that I decided to concentrate on. You know, there's this uh, moment... I think it's in Henry the Fourth, uh, Part Two, where Henry the Fourth is—he's about to die, and Henry the Fifth is going to become the king, his son, with whom he has a very, very difficult relationship. And and Henry the Fourth is kind of uh, 
he's kind of trying to come clean about his previous career to Hal, but he can't really. He says, greatness and I were compelled to kiss. And, and no, I don't think so at all. I think he, you know, he, he got a sense of what royal power was like, uh, and he wanted it, and he kind of connived his way to it. And he actually, in other ways, rather ad- admits that. And I think so. I think another, you know, another dimension of of Shakespeare, which is absolutely something one sees in in politics and business and universities, too, is the way in which powerful people can convince themselves of things, um, and and can, among other things, can convince themselves the rectitude of their own behavior, when really it's it's not. I mean, the you know. Shakespeare is a wonderful student of self self deception and how people try to um, make themselves or create themselves, and 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 I think one of the points he makes is you know you could be brilliant and still do that you know still delude yourself about who you really are, um, and you know it, it ends up having consequences. I think you're half right there, Elliot, but it's tough to say whether they are deluding themselves or, going back to your first point we made in this podcast, uh, whether it's theater, whether it's just presenting to others that uh, they were right and not deluding themselves. Uh, You do have characters who are, you know, get kind of blinding insights after a while of what what happened to them in life. Um, Certainly, you do that with Macbeth. You have other characters who really don't. Richard III and Iago really don't get that. But even in the dark plays, Elliot, that you mentioned and you concentrate on, you do get some of those grand thoughts that uh, that I've been talking about. Uh, one of the last speeches of Macbeth, of all people, he says, you know what? In my situation, he's about to be killed. He's on the battlefield. He says, in my situation my stage of life, there are things that should come about. And he names three. He says love, honor, and hoops of friends. I got none of them. Okay? And I'm telling you, he's lamenting that, but he has insights. And if you had to list three things that all of our listeners out there with this wonderful Shield of the Republic podcast should think about in life is, would you at your battlefield, the last stages of life, uh, fulfill what Macbeth, of all people, says, you know, you should have been living for? Love, honor, and hoops of friends. Macbeth figures it out, as you say, too late. He does become wise too late. Uh, he decides to go down. He decides to go down swinging. I've, you know, Macbeth is such a fantastic play. You know, for me, the thing that's so powerful about it is w- when we first encounter him, it's not he's not a bad guy. Um, and there is there's some hints that he has the potential for enormous violence in him. I mean, there's the description of this battle he's just fought against a rebel. And uh, somebody's describing it. He says he he unseamed him from the nave to the chops, which means you know basically disemboweled him. And I 
when I taught that to my students, I would say, let's not skip over that phrase. Let's think about what that really means and what somebody who can do that is really like. Um, and there are other other things there, but th but that you know for me this is part of the other greatness of Shakespeare, and I th and I think a source of insight into the political power that people change, and it, it's quite amazing that you know in a play which might only last a couple of hours, you can see a tremendous evolution. One of the things I talk a little bit about in the book is uh, Richard the Third, and how it kind of helped me think of a little bit about whether or not uh, Putin would invade. Uh, Ukraine the way he did on, in 2022, and the you know, the thing that struck me in the in one of many rereadings of the play is that Richard, who is a villain, um, although he's a villain you can empathize with, uh, it, it for the first three acts of the play he's clever, he's indirect, he's using cutouts, I mean, he's doing terrible things, he's having his brother drowned in a cask of wine, but. Um, when he gets to act four and he's been, finally been crowned and he commits the really big crime, which is the murder of his nephews in the tower, he doesn't hide it at all. He, and he, uh, you know, he says to his number two, you know, let me be playing. I wish the bastard's dead and want it done suddenly. Do you understand me? And, and that's not the way he would have spoken before. And the other thing that's even more sinister is when the murderers come back, he, he wants them to describe how they killed two children. He's getting off on it. it it's, it's, it's exciting to him. And, and you know, for me, that was, the, the, you know, it did make me think about Putin, that a guy who could be cle clever and limited uh, and quite cunning, I mean, horrible. Uh, but if you think about Georgia, if you think about the seizure of Donbass, if you think about the seizure of Crimea, who is clever and adroit and calculating and so on, and February 24, 2022, um, it, it's just open and brutal, and he's concealing nothing. The language, he, like Richard III, the language he uses is uh, contains references to rape. You know, he's, he says to, uh, in some sort of speech to the uh, Ukrainians, uh, you know, like it or not, my beauty, you, you have to accept it. Um, and it's clear that the references to a man raping a woman. And, and I just thought to myself, you know, there's the, 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 what Shakespeare, one of the things Shakespeare is teaching us is people are not static and they evolve and they can, sometimes they can evolve for the better. Sometimes they can evolve in self-knowledge and sometimes they can just really deteriorate in from a number of points of view. And you need to be aware of that. I have an idea for you, Elliot. This is uh, news you can use. Next time you teach your class, and your students are very lucky to have you, I'll tell you that. And you teach Richard III, which I'm sure you love doing. Have them concentrate on one other aspect. And that is, look at the people who supported Richard III along his journey. Yes. This is what has taken me after exhausting Richard III and going through his gyrations. And as you say, he changes and all. Who are these people? Well, there's a whole group of people there. Some of them thought he's going nowhere. You know, he's not going to get anywhere near power, which is his view when the when Henry VI uh, goes and when uh, Richard III starts. Uh, so it's harmless to support him. Others say, well, he's going to get into office. 
But, you know, he doesn't have any competence in here. And if he gets into office, he'll just screw it up. And, you know, so it's kind of harmless in that way. Another group will think and say, well, you know what? When he gets into office, I'm going to benefit because I'm going to get some of the goodies. I'm going to get some of the jobs. I'm going to, I'm going to be there. Uh, some of the groups say, I kind of like his goals, although it's unclear because he doesn't have any really goals except power. Uh, so if you do all these five types, I would say, of people who supported Richard along the way, you can find them in, you know, Trumpian characters. And none of them turn out well. None of them get rewarded. None of them, you know, get the nicest thing in return. Uh, and, you know, Buckingham, who was his campaign manager, the one guy who really was close to him throughout this journey when the hangar is on and the, you know, the types I just described, he goes through all of them. He's the Mark Meadows of it. He uh, goes through all of them. Then at the end, um, you know, he said, this has been a terrible ride. I, I made a terrible mistake here. And he's taken out and hung. When we think about Shakespeare plays, we think about the big characters, Henry V, Macbeth, and so on. We sometimes forget that he does a wonderful job with the courtiers. You know, with and, and it's not just in Richard III, you see it in Henry VI, where, you know, you have these different aristocrats jockeying for power who are all quite flawed. Um, for me, the, so here's an, a, another play which people tend not to read as much or to perform, Cymbeline. You know, people ask me, okay, Donald Trump, which is, is he Richard III? Is he Macbeth? And, you know, my response is, no, he's too much of a, he's a dangerous doofus, but he's too much of a doofus to be either of those. He's like this figure, Cloten. So Cloten is um, the stepson of a king. He wants uh, to rape uh, the king's daughter by a previous marriage and kill her husband. And he's he's a joke. He's you know he's he's an idiot. He's a buffoon. But he's very dangerous. And the thing that is so striking to me about the, Shakespeare's depiction of him is the way in which his courtiers, at the same time, they make fun of him, they mock him in asides to the, each other and to the audience, and they in no way try to block him. They enable him. And boy, there's a profound truth there as well about the nature of, of courtier politics, that you can have people who understand that you know they're dealing with somebody who's impaired in any of a number of different ways, whether it's morally or politically, but they will go along with it. And, um, you know, there's, again, something that we see perfectly well in our politics today. And you're right to concentrate on some, you know, lesser characters. One of <laughs> the things I love about a play, which everybody loves, Romeo and Juliet, is there's a scene where Juliet takes the, the quasi-poison or sleeping, sleeping uh, <laughs> potion uh, up in her room the night before her you know, wedding to Paris. And, um, you know, the nurse sees her and thinks she's dead. And, you know, and then everybody in the household goes crazy, of course, because on the eve of her wedding, uh, there she is and uh, died. And everybody thinks died. They don't know that she took this temporary potion. Uh, anyway, 
there is going to be, because this is the night before the wedding, there's going to be a party at the, uh, at the house for her. And a, a number of uh, musicians come to perform at the party, okay? <laughs> they walk in. Uh, our daughter is a violinist with the Richmond Symphony, and so uh, we're kind of sympathetic to this. Uh, they walk in, ready, you know, for this. They hear the screaming up there. They ask somebody, you know, what is all this about? Oh, my God, Juliet is dead. And they talk among themselves real quickly. This is mostly taken out of every production of Romeo and Juliet I've ever seen. Uh, and they talk among themselves real quickly. Oh, Christ. You know, we're not going to get paid for this gig. Uh, you know, here we are. <laughs> They're running around. Uh, you know, no one's paying any attention to this. And the other one says, I understand that. So let's take some food as we're leaving because they're not going to do anything with the food either. <laughs> so this group of musicians, up. no, how did Shakespeare think of that? I mean, why did he think of that? <laughs> these musicians? And when I pointed this out to my daughter, she says, that's exactly what we do. Of course, we, do. we get paid some very small, even if we get paid for our gigs, we might as well take some of the food when we go. So let me ask uh, the two of you this question. You know, we've touched on the notion of performance art and politics and the role that political theater plays. And I wonder whether our listeners listening to this podcast would say, yeah, but in the United States today, we've reached the point of diminishing returns in, you know, performance art as politics, that the performative part now is outweighing almost everything else. Is, is there an element here that Shakespeare can illuminate? I mean, there's something to that in the context of our politics, but the you know, the performative element of politics can be very, very important. Um, again, something I talk about a little bit in the book. I once had a uh, director who's done a lot of Shakespeare plays speak to my students. And one of the questions I asked him is, uh, okay, so what are your first decisions when you're about to stage a Shakespeare play? He said, well, the most important decisions are costuming and stage set. And I went, wow, really? And, you know, he then he went on to that. And I that came into my mind uh, the first night again of the Ukraine war, where you think about Volodymyr Zelensky. So costuming, he, he is he dresses himself in a quasi military clothing. It's olive drab. It's not a uniform. And I think he was probably very self-conscious about that. And of course, he was an actor. Uh, so he had a sense of, of theater. So he's kind of the, as Shakespeare might say, a warrior for the working day. Uh, but but he's, his status is clear that he's a he's going to be a fighting civilian leader. His stage set is are the streets of Kiev, um, and the the way he stages it is if you remember he has all of his close advisors around him, the Minister of Defense and the Chief of Staff, and he gives a, a fairly Shakespearean speech. Uh, which is actually has some Churchillian overtones, you know, we're here, the Minister of Defense is here, the Chief of Staff is here, we're going to fight this out to the end. It, it really is has echoes of Churchill in, in 1940. And of course, you, you compare that with the, the staging of Vladimir Putin, you know, talking at the end, you know, 30 feet away 
at the, you know, with his kind of cowed subordinates. And I, I have to think Zelensky was thinking about that. That, that can be very, very powerful uh, stuff. Uh, I think there's, look, I mean, we're in the middle of this uh, dreadful war in uh, Gaza. I think it was a piece of political theater for President Biden to go to Israel. And it was a really important thing to do. The, and, and I can tell from um, Israeli friends who I've been talking to, it had a huge impact. Now, did he say anything that he couldn't have said on a video teleconference? Of course not. You know, there, there was, was there anything substantive as a result of that that made a, uh, that would have made, you know, been any different whether he was doing it in person or remotely? No. But the fact of being there, being on the ground, and there's the president of the United States and all that, hugely important. So I, in, and in any case, you know, the performative element of politics is inescapable. And the performative element of power is inescapable. Whether you, you know, famous episode, Henry V, who, by the way, I really can't stand as a human being. It's a wonderful play, but I really loathe him as a, as a leader, although he's absolutely, absolutely brilliant, you know, and, and extremely successful. He, the night before the Battle of Agincourt, when, you know, every, the, the troops are, they know they're outnumbered. When the movie versions, it's usually raining. I mean, it, it's, they know the, the cause of this war isn't all that just and so on. But he goes from campfire to campfire and the chorus says, a, a touch of Harry in the night. Well, you know, that's, that's the theater of leadership. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of examples of that from World War II or, you know, I make a reference to Daniel Morgan of the Battle of Cowpens in 1781. Same, same thing. He goes around campfire to campfire uh, for a bunch of American soldiers who are outnumbered and uh, think that they may very well lose the next battle. Um, so the, you know, there can be great performative art. Uh, and unfortunately, I think if we if we want to think about um, why it is that particularly Donald Trump, who none of us particularly admire um, or like, has been so successful. It's because he is, unfortunately, really good at a certain kind of theater. Hillary Clinton did not, I think, understand the theater of politics particularly well and certainly couldn't play in it. He, unfortunately, did. Now, it's a limited... He had, as, as you know, you might say, in the theater world, a limited performance range. Uh, and he does, and I think that will eventually, it's one of the reasons why I think he will eventually sink. But one, one shouldn't deny the power of what he was able to to pull off, just the way, kind of the presence he is on the stage, uh, the way he talks to people, where he talked to, to crowds of people. You know, David French made the point that, um, you know, he went to a number of his rallies and said, you know, people are having a good time. They're enjoying it. So I, th I think we're we're stuck with there's there's an entertainment factor there no no question and and I think one of the reasons why Ron DeSantis has been such a flop as a presidential candidate is despite the fact that he has political positions that are virtually indistinguishable from Trump's it, he's not nearly as entertaining yeah he'd be the despair of a casting director I think uh, part of it part part of it is also the follow up on Elliot's very good point is that. Uh, the best of the lot understand their performance. And uh, I love the story that uh, FDR 
heard that Orson Welles was in town one time and said, you know, get him in here, get him in here. And so Orson Welles comes into the executive office and FDR sticks out his hand. He says, I just wanted to meet the second greatest actor in the Western world. <laughs> and the uh, president who I, I served was lucky enough to serve, let me say that, for seven years. Uh, Ronald Reagan was asked, uh, you know, how can an actor be in this job? He says, I can't understand being in this job without being an actor. Yeah, I think that uh, that is a perfect note uh, on which for, we should uh, draw this uh, episode of Shield of the Republic to a close. It's It's been um, great, Ken, having you as a guest. Um, we appreciate you very much. And uh, I hope when your terrific book, Reagan at Reykjavik, finally makes it to the small screen. We can have you back to talk about uh, talk about that. I have to say, I have to interrupt you. Sorry about that. Right, right when you're making a pitch for my book. I sure. Mean, why would I? Not at all. Ever interrupt you. <laughs> <But> I invited <laughs> I it. I dedicated Reagan at Reykjavik uh, when I wrote it. It's the story of the Reykjavik summit of 1986, October of 1986. And I dedicated the book to Carol and will. I can't imagine life without them. I've been asked a hundred times since then. We all know who Carol is. That's your wife. I didn't know you had a brother, Will. I didn't know you had a son, Will. I didn't know you had a father, Will. I didn't know you. What? Who's Will? And I said, I can't imagine life without him. <laughs> Elliot, tell our listeners how they can get their discount uh, from Basic Books. If you go to Basic Books as part of the Hachette Book Group, that's H-A-C-H-E-T-T-E Book Group, uh, we'll put this on the website. If you go to that website and you use the code H-L-L-W-23, uh, you will get a 20% discount. So you have to order it from the Hachette uh, website. But again, if you go there, log on, you put in, uh, there'll be a section where you can put in a discount code, HLLW23, you'll get 20% off. And let me tell you, it's a bargain. It's a very good book. It's a very good book. I would copy all that and I would do it and paste it right now where I'm not expecting to get a free copy that's inscribed without having done that. So rather than get a 20% discount, I'm hoping for a 100% discount. Hint, hint, hint. All right. Well, we may be able to arrange that. We'll see. <laughs> I think you've earned it, Ken. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to close with an admonition to our listeners to thine own self be true. And that'll bring this episode of Shield of the Public to an end. <laughs>